All right, sweet. We are in 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, turn there. Um, Man, let me just kind of give you the big picture and the context and why we're going through 1 Kings. You're like, really 1 Kings? Yes. We're doing this series called Prophets and Kings. The hope is to see the gospel of Jesus um, displayed in the Old Testament. The gospel did not start in the book of Matthew. It started actually in Genesis. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, we see the story of Jesus told in different ways or in different stories. Whether it's through sin and brokenness and redemption, you can see the go- these gospel kind of narratives coming to life. We want to go through 1 Kings because we want you to see how the kingdom ultimately divided into two kingdoms. And then we're going to see how God worked within those kingdoms. So just to kind of catch up to speed, in 1 Kings chapter 12, we saw how the kingdom split. This was a big deal. This is like a narrative shift in the Old Testament. It went from Israel being under one king, one kingdom, to now Israel's divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and Jeroboam's the first king of that kingdom. Then there's the southern kingdom, and his name is Rehoboam. I know the names are similar, but they're not related. Then you have Rehoboam. He's the king of Judah. The northern kingdom has 10 tribes. The southern kingdom has two tribes, all right, attached to it. There's a split. And then from this point on, 1 Kings 12 and on, you're going to see different kings. We mentioned this last week, but in the northern kingdom, there's not one good king. Out of 20 kings, all are evil. For the southern kingdom, remember that's in Judah, the southern kingdom has Jerusalem. It has the temple. There's different moments of revival throughout the southern kingdom. We're going to read about five good kings, a handful of like mixed, where they're partially doing good and a lot of evil as well. So you're going to read about these different kingdoms. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is this is where God sends different prophets to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, and God is basically calling them to repentance. I want you to see the big picture because for me, I got confused a lot growing up. Which king was a part of what kingdom? Why does this matter? What did the, where did the prophet go to? Why did he go there? Here's what we see. The kingdom splits. Northern kingdom, that's called Israel. Southern kingdom, that's called Judah, right? Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. You have the split, and you see that God sent different prophets to call the people to repentance. Basically, both kingdoms have the same problem. Here's what they do. They begin to adopt the culture's idols of their day. They begin to adopt the worldviews of their day. They basically begin to intertwine the priesthood with the priesthood of Baal or Ashereth. You see them kind of embracing the beliefs and gods of their day and, and just intermingling it in a sense. And so the reason why we're going through this is there's so many parallels for us today. How do we learn from this? How do we not adopt the culture or the idols or the gods of our day? How do we not try to combine Christianity with other worldviews? There's a lot we can take away from this. This is an interesting chapter. We're in 1 Kings 17. And we had you guys, we put this on social media, we had you guys read 13 through 16 at home. There'll be some passages that just make more sense for you to read and catch up and it encourages you to read the Bible. Um, here's what we'll show you actually. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. There's actually, at this point, in 1 Kings 17, we're gonna see uh, King Ahab. He's the king of the, of the northern kingdom. Uh, so you have the, up until this point, 17, there's a few kings. We start with Jeroboam. They work their way through pretty quickly some of the kings. They're all wicked in the northern kingdom. We come to Ahab, who's the most wicked king. He is the most wicked king up until this point. Probably it's debated that he's the most wicked king throughout this time. Then in the southern kingdom, during the uh, reign of King Ahab, you see uh, Asa, who's a good king, and Jehoshaphat. So Ahab is in the north, ruling and reigning. You have Asa and then Jehoshaphat. Great name, by the way, if you're looking for baby names, Jehoshaphat. I've been called Jehoshaphat. It's a great name. Um, Jehoshaphat is also a good king. He's also ruling and reigning during the time of Ahab. So I want to kind of catch up to speed, help you see the big picture of what's going on. Now, this is what I love. We're being introduced to some fun text. All right, like we're going to slow it down, 17, 18, 19. This is where we see uh, the first, this first mention of the, of the prophet Elijah. Chapter 17, we're introduced to Elijah. We have no idea where he comes from, essentially. Just comes out of nowhere. It's not even, it doesn't even say he's a prophet in chapter 17. He just comes on the scene, pronounces a drought on the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, and there's a drought in the land for three and a half years. And we'll read how this matters in chapter 18 and 19. We'll, we'll look at this more in depth. But I love Elijah. Basically, you have Moses, who represents all of the law. And you have Elijah, who represents, you could say, the prophets. Elijah is not the first prophet, but he's kind of like the main prophet. <laughs> he's kind of like the spokesperson for the prophets. Uh, Elijah's fascinating to me. We're going to hopefully the next few weeks do like an in-depth dive into Elijah his work, his ministry, why God called him, what God called him to do. Basically, there's like this battle, this showdown that takes place. What we see in these chapters is God is saying, I'm the one true God. Let me prove it to you. That's kind of what we're seeing through these next few chapters. I'm the one true God. You need to know this. 
There's a lot of false gods out there that make a lot of promises but can never fulfill it. I'm the one true God. Elijah's my guy to show that I'm the one true God. So Elijah's the prophet calling people to repentance. The north and the south are both getting lost to an extent, and he's calling the northern kingdom back to repentance. Elijah, his name simply means Yahweh is my God. Beautiful name, Yahweh is my God. And his name just kind of reflects his ministry. Hey, he's my God. He needs to be your God. He's the one true God. He's the living God. I put it up here this way so you can see this. Elijah was a prophet primarily calling out Ahab and his son uh, Ahaziah. There's basically two kings that Elijah's primarily working during this time. But you're going to see the showdown between Elijah and really the, the men of uh, Ahab, his wife Jezebel. You maybe know that story, the most infamous couple, I think, in the Old Testament. But here's, here's the thing. I want you to get to know this guy, Elijah. I want you to see how he calls the people to serve the one true living God. And he's basically saying, our generation, he's saying, we're missing the point. We're missing it. We got to stop mixing our faith with this world's faith. We got to start serving the one true and living God. Elijah's a beautiful um, representation, I think, of just all the prophets in their work. He's speaking on behalf of God to the people of God. And we seem kind of set the tone for the prophets to come after him. And so I want to look at this story a little bit more in depth, but here's what I want to say. Um, the hope of today, we're going to read through all of 17 in, in just a little bit, but the hope of 1 Kings 17, I think that it begs the question, and this is what Elijah, this is what God is showing him, this is what uh, God is doing. It's basically asking the question, um, do you really trust in God? Like, do you really trust in God? And how do we not ha trust him in, in name only or in words only? Like, do you really trust in him? And God's going to be testing Elijah. God's going to be testing this widow. And I think we have some of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Jesus references these stories. Uh, there's, this is a powerful passage of scripture. And again, um, this is our first like, little insight into Elijah. And I just want to slow down and I just want to pray. Before we read, before we get into it, I just want to ask that question again. Like, do you really trust in God? How do you know? Why does God use so many different circumstances in our life to reveal what we really trust in? So I just want to pray and then just ask the Lord to move. Can we do that? Let's do it. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful, God, that um, you speak to us. God, I thank you for what the author of Hebrews wrote, that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to us through the prophets of old, but in these last days, you've spoken to us through your son. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God. We are, we are gathered here because we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That Elijah's greatest work is ultimately pointing to the true king. And Lord, we just need you. We ask that you would just um, work in our lives, that you would accomplish uh, your will in us, that you do what it is you want to do. In your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, there are some decisions in life that we would or would not do based off the data we had beforehand. Like, I, I want, if there's certain details I had going into a circumstance, it might have changed how I approached that circumstance, that dynamic. If I knew all the facts, if I knew the outcome, I probably would and would not have done several things in my life. And here's the idea. This is where faith comes in. You know, um, Last night, I had to catch a flight from Atlanta to here. Uh, it's kind of a crazy, you know, I don't know, I, hour and a half period. You guys know I'm not a big fan of flying. That's just, that's a fun thing. You guys know that. Don't love flying. My wife texts me, uh, go to like gate D8 in Atlanta. So I, I get on the, I'm running late. I had to turn in the rental car. I'm getting on the little subway to get to D8. I get to D8 and he's like, oh, your flight's at A6. I'm like, oh, sweet. Thank you so much. And you guys know Atlanta, you feel like on a subway, a subway, just to get to your like, oh my God. so I have to get on the subway. I'm the last one to get on the plane, either last or second to last. Like everyone's there. I'm like sweating. I'm out of breath. Middle seat, so much fun. Middle seat, this sweaty, out of breath dude next to people. Like, I'm sorry. It was awful. Sitting there, then we get stuck. You know, we're not like leaving. We're just kind of sitting on the mat for a while and it's like hot and I'm just like sweating. Next. It was just one of those moments where I'm like, get me out of here. Uh, get on the plane. We finally take off, you know, hit some turbulence. I just, you know, those thoughts are going through my mind. Uh, when we land, it's like one of those like, boosh, like a hard land. Like you hear it. And everyone's like, oh, okay. We landed. And then we sat on the mat for an hour. Uh, we just sat there for an hour and just had to wait. And uh, the lights on the plane go off a few different times. And the guy next to me is like, I'm so glad that the lights, like this, I feel like the plane shut down. He's like, good thing this didn't happen in the air. I'm like, yeah, good thing. 
as we're sitting there for like on the, just we're sitting there for an hour, the flight attendant says, hey guys, fun fact, the second officer, this is actually his second time ever landing an airplane with us. Why don't you give it up for him? And I was like, this was the second time ever landing an airplane? You know, me not liking flights. If I knew that information going into the flight, I don't know if I would have gone on. And it's like, can we congratulate? I'm like, congratulate him. Like we all thought the plane broke when we landed. Like I was like, hey, good job for not killing us, you know, on the way out. Um, that's what my mind thinks. And there, this is a stupid example, but there are some things in life, if we had all of the data, if we had all of the details, maybe we would or would not have given into it. So for example, you know, again, um, before we planted this church, I, there was so much fear that I had to really kind of constantly surrender, like, Lord, this fear is unhealthy, it's not of you. But there's this, this thought of like going through my mind, like, Lord, is this going to work out? What does work out even mean? God, are you a part of this? Are you in this? There's so much fear. And I, I feel like during this time, and when I look back at my journal, I look back at the notes, a lot of it was like, yeah, you, you don't know. Like, you don't know. Are you still ready to go? Like, you don't know the details. You don't know the outcome. Are you willing to do it, though? Like, are you willing to partner with me on this journey of faith, even though you don't have all the information around it? Here's the point. I want all of the data before I make a decision. I want all the details. I want to know the outcome. However, at that point in time, is that faith? It's not faith if I know the outcome. It's probably not faith if I have all the data and the details. There comes a point in time you're like, here's all I know. God, you told me to do this. I'll do it. (laughs) Sometimes we don't have more than that. So often in the Old Testament, it's like the word of the Lord came to, we'll see this a couple times, the word of the Lord came to Elijah or the word of the Lord came to the widow. It says, and she did it. And he did it. We might not get all of the details. We might not get the outcome beforehand. But I do think if we did have those details, that wouldn't be faith then. Because what are we doing? We're, we're, we're doing something we already know how it will play out. I think God wants to put us in these moments and circumstances that be like, all right, here is the opportunity to display faith. You really don't know the outcome. Here is your chance now to act in faith. All you might know is the word that the God gave you is just go. That's all you might know. Is that enough for you? See, I, I really want to talk about this for a second. Um, do, we really, do we really honestly trust in God? I, I, it sounds so stupid, but I'm sitting on the plane. I hate flying. You guys know that, but I'm just like, going, do I really trust you? Do I really trust you? If this were to go down, if it, like my stupid thoughts are like going through my mind. But I'm like, do I really trust you? Do, does my lifestyle show that? Like, do people know? Like, do I know? Do you know? Do I really trust in you? Is there anything I'm actually tr- secretly trusting in something else? Or do I really trust in you? Because I really do believe God puts us through different circumstances for a couple of different reasons. One is to reveal what do we really trust in. I think so often, it's not like God doesn't know, but I think God's trying to reveal to us, like, do you really trust in me? Is there an area that maybe, maybe you're trusting in this and you need to repent of this and you need to start trusting in me in this area, this scenario? I think maybe that also in those circumstances, it's not just revealing what we trust in, but God does use it to build our faith. Like, yes, Lord. If I can obey you in this small way, this small way, this small way, and it grows and grows, and I can trust you on this big way. I used to always love what our, our pastor said about um, this. We talked about, you know, years ago, 10 plus years ago, like talking about you know, church planting, going out, and the, the idea of like the unknown. And I remember what he said about like, as far as funds go, I just thought it was a fun statement. He's like, listen, um, whether it's $1, $10, $100, $1 million, $10 million, you know what the difference is? He's like, the difference between a 10 and a million is just a few extra zeros. What, is, what, what are zeros? Nothing. God can give you nothing. <laughs> and I just love the thought of like, what's the difference between $100, 1000 a million, 10 million, 20? What's the difference for God? It's just zeros. It's just zeros. What's zeros to him? Zeros are nothing. The point of it is like, sometimes we need to experience those like micro bite-sized faith journey steps so we can take on the bigger and bigger, like, okay, Lord, you can do this. I think this is, what happen- is what's happening with Elijah and the widow. It's just like, okay, Lord, you can do this. It says this in Psalm 37.5, he says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Listen, church, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. This is what's happening in 1 Kings 17. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, he will act. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as you trust in him, he will act? So there's really two points today. We're looking at a couple of different stories. Here's the first point. Uh, Trust God even when circumstances don't make sense. And number two, trust God when faced with death. Trust God even when circumstances don't make sense. He gives us two stories to display that. Trust God even when circumstances don't make sense. Let's read. It's 1 Kings 17. Let's just jump in. Verse 1. All right, you guys ready? Verse 1. It says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite, I like Tishbites. They're awesome. Uh, of Tishbe, 
in Gilead said to Ahab, he said this, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. All right, let's look at this. Um, I know that sometimes it's easy to read the Bible like maybe this is fairy tale. Maybe this is a story you go, oh, this didn't really happen. It happened some other way. Listen, I do want you to think of this event, and we have to look at this as this this is a literal story that happened. Basically, Elijah says to Ahab, Ahab, you're the most wicked king that's ever lived. There's going to be a drought. I have to point this out. God did not, from the text, we're not told that God said, go and pronounce this drought. It's almost as if uh, Elijah went in faith and said, there's going to be a drought. Now, why is that? We're told in Deuteronomy that if they're king or the people turn their hearts away from God, there will be a drought in the land. I actually think that uh, Elijah's just acting on the word of God that he knows. He's like, you know what, God, you promised that if the people's heart turn away from you, there will be a drought. So Elijah goes and says, hey, there's gonna be a drought. And he gives a timeline. There's gonna be a drought. And then God says to him, go and hide by this brook, drink from that brook. I'm gonna send ravens to bring you meat and bread every morning and evening. I love that. Meat and bread. That's a sandwich, right? Meat and bread. Every morning and night, you're gonna have a sandwich. I just think that's so great. God's like, I'm going to bring you meat and bread every morning. I'm going to take care of your needs. This is what he says to him. Now, there's a lot there in this passage. Um, This is one of those things where, again, we don't know who Elijah is at this point. It doesn't say Elijah a prophet. It's like a slow revelation of who Elijah is. He comes from this area. He goes to this king. He pronounces it. It's the northern kingdom. It's the evil kingdom, evil king. Hey, there's going to be a drought in the land. And he pronounces it, then he goes and hides. We'll get back to the drought idea because there's going to be a showdown eventually regarding this drought. We're going to kind of get back to the idea. But I want you to see that here's this, this guy who goes to a, an unknown part of the land and he asks that the Lord provide for him in very unique ways. It doesn't really make sense. The circumstances don't make sense. The reason why I do find this fascinating is that ravens actually, according to Leviticus 11, were an unclean bird. Very specifically, ravens are an unclean bird. The Lord says, I'm going to use this unclean thing to provide for you. Now, that's fascinating to me. Elijah almost has to dismiss, but Lord, the law says that this thing is unclean. And this is the thing that's feeding me. My provision is coming from something unclean. That's fascinating to me. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, uh, but see too how possible it is for us to carry bread and meat to God's servants and do some good things for his church and yet be ravens still. Meaning, maybe the Lord will provide in ways that don't seem right or don't seem to fit your box. Like, this doesn't make sense how God can provide through uh, an unclean thing or a non-believer. Or maybe God speaks through you and you feel like you're a raven. You feel like you're unclean. Like God can d- provide for you in the most unusual ways. It's really sweet when I've seen that throughout just like a few years of being around the Lord, how like the Lord maybe even motivates people who don't know him to give to his work in his kingdom. It's funny when I see a business kind of giving to a gospel cause but it doesn't know Jesus. I'm like, well, that's amazing. God can provide in really unique ways. And this, this is an unclean, unkosher bird providing for Elijah. And I think that God had to break certain mindsets or, or thoughts that he had. Basically, God's showing the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. The letter of the law says that bird's unclean. The spirit of the law says, I'm going to provide for you. I care for you. I care more for you than, than maybe w- what mindset you have on this specific issue and I'm going to provide for you. And I want you just to see how the Lord provided for his needs in the most unique ways. Paul said this in a very similar way. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the reason why I'm bringing this up. This is a New Testament truth, but this is an Old Testament analogy. Um, do you actually believe this? Do you believe that God will provide all your needs? Obviously not your wants, but my God shall supply every need. God is so amazing how he uses really unique moments and circumstances to provide for us. I want you to think there's a drought in the land. He's down by this brook. God brings ravens to bring him meat and bread every morning and night. This is probably not what he expected. Again, we're not, we don't really have background to Elijah. It's not like, oh, this was normal for me. This is probably just as abnormal to him as it is to us. And yet this is what God chooses to do and how he chooses to work. 
I find this fascinating because it is fun. Just um, I was reading about this, trying to read about like the history of the church and how God provides unique ways. Maybe you're familiar with some of these, you know, famous or well-known stories. Um, George Mueller was a guy who created an orphanage in, in the UK and just wanted to meet kids and orphans. And every morning he basically like, be like, we have no bread, we have no milk. He'd wake up and pray like, God, please provide milk. And then like a dairy milk truck would like knock on his door and be like, um, our truck broke down. Do you want this milk? It's going to go bad. It's like the, God provides the most unique, and it's so fun to read the stories because you see how God does this over and over again. And it's weird to think like a raven. Uh, it's fun just, again, read up on this. I'm gonna, I don't care if you find this. Int- I thought this was interesting. There's a few classic stories about different reformers and people throughout history where God provided or really helped them through animals. And I thought this was fun. I'm gonna put the first story up. His name is John Brenz. John Brenz was a, for- a reformer. He was a friend of Martin Luther. He's a part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, he hid from this emperor. He had to hide in his neighbor's loft. And while they're searching for him for about 15 days, they're searching for him. He's hiding in the loft. And this is a true story. Every day, there'd be a hen that'd fly up, lay an egg, fly away. Fly up to him, he'd get an egg for 14 days. The hen didn't show up the 15th day. And that's the 15th day is when the, the, the Charles V's men, they, that's when they left. So for 14 days, as long as I remember there, he had, a, he had a, like egg that God, and he probably just cracked and ate it, I don't know, Rocky style. But it was amazing. But like when you're hungry, you're like, yes, God provided for him that way. That's a true story. Another story. I thought it was fun. John Craig. Uh, he also was a reformer. He was arrested during the Spanish Inquisi- Inquisition um, on the eve of his execution. He escaped. Now, here's how the story goes. As he escaped, he's running. He's fleeing. This random uh, stray dog, you know, goes up to him. And he's like, shoot, get away. Shoot, get away. The dog shows up to him. And the dog, you know, as he, he sees he, what's in his mouth, the dog has a purse in its mouth. And it's just filled with coins. And this guy's like, uh, and just takes the purse, and that's why he paid for his journey to escape and get to freedom. I love that. Dog just shows up, like, no. Like, I love that. Like, get away, dog. And he's like, no, I have some money for you. Um, this is so great. <laughs> Last one, Robert Bruce. Maybe you know Bruce, the outlaw king kind of idea. Uh, Robert Bruce of Scotland. He was fleeing for his life. He hid in a small cave. A spider showed up. Like, what does that mean? He hides in this cave. As soon as he hides in this cave, a web starts being formed by the spider. The men who are looking for him see this spider web, and they go, he can't be in here you know, he'd have to break through the spider web. Like, there's no way he's in here. There's already a f- well-developed spider web. So they assumed he obviously must not be in the cage because there's already a spider web over it. He ended up saying this. He wrote this down. He says, uh, how do you say? I owe God, I thank thee that in the tiny bowels of a spider, you can place for me a shelter. <laughs> I just thought it was fun to read. Like, God, you show up in the most unique ways. The disciples. How do we pay for our taxes? Jesus like, go fishing, get a coin out of that fish's mouth. <laughs> right? Just, I love these stories over and over. Just God provides in unique ways. The reason why I share this is, there will be times where it does not make sense. Trusting God does not always make sense. That's the whole point of trusting God. The whole idea is, uh, I'm going to proclaim a drought. The drought's going to affect me. I don't know what I'm going to do in this time. Trusting God, it looks like this. You must trust him even when things don't make sense to you intellectually, academically. When you go, I don't get this. I know. That's part of what trusting God is. And I want to develop this idea more with the next story or two. This is so important for us. And here's what you see. It's actually the brook dries up and he has to move on. If you notice in verse seven, I thought this phrase was interesting. It says, and after a while, the brook dried up because there's no rain in the land. There comes points in times where you feel like God's way or God's provision for you, it dries up. God's way of providing for him, it dried up. Now what does he have to do? He has to move on. And the Lord will provide again, but he doesn't know that yet. It's funny when we read the stories, like we have the story, we can like, we know the details. They didn't, he, Elijah can't read 1 Kings 17 and be like, and then, like he doesn't know. It's still so much faith involved. But there are times the brook will dry up. I love what F.B. Meyer, a famous author, said about the brook drying up. Here's what he said. He says, why does God let them dry the brooks? He wants to teach us not to trust in his gifts, but in himself. He wants to drain us of self as he drained the apostles by 10 days of waiting before Pentecost. He wants to loosen our roots. He removes us to some other sphere of service and education. He wants to put in stronger contrast the river of thrown water that never dries. He wants to remind us everything else will dry up, but I have something too that will never dry up. The, the river that provided for his, his water, <laughs> it dried up. And he, does he think God abandoned me? Do you think it's over? No, God's going to provide another way for him in just a second. But so often we think it's in those moments, maybe God is done. There's one author, and I just want to point this out because I thought this was helpful. It's helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. He says, when things dry up, dot, dot, dot. When things dry up, one, God wants to teach us not to trust in his gift, but himself. Don't trust in what I can give. Trust in me. Don't trust in the things I can do for you. Trust in the author of the one who does those things for you. 
Number two is this. When things dry up, our dried up brooks are not an indication that God has forsaken us. Don't think that when things are dried up in your life, that means God's forsaken. No, he's not. He did not forsake Elijah when the brook dried up. It's easy to think the brook's dried up. God must have forsaken me. Maybe people have given you advice on that. Well, see, things seem to not be going well. Maybe God, no, God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. When things dry up, dried books remain, remind us that the one who provided the water can choose to take it away. You know, when things dry up, it's like, no, Lord, you can give and you can take away. Blessed be your name. There is that idea as well. It's not to be like, oh, things dried up, God abandoned. No, but the Lord is still worthy of praise. The Lord is still good. When things dry up, number four, dried brooks can also be an indication that God is changing directions for you by closing one door and opening another. Maybe God's like, I have a new location in mind for you, and that's exactly what happens. So story number two of trusting God even when circumstances don't make sense. It now involves it for Elijah's sake and this widow's sake. So let's actually keep reading verse eight. Keep going with the story. This is fascinating. Verse eight. Then, so things dried up. Then, verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him. He says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you, a widow to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he had come to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering six. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Reminds me of someone else, verse 11. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and only and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. All right. She's at the end of her rope here. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her, her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Okay, fascinating story. Trusting God, again, remember, even when circumstances don't make sense. I want you to understand this, by the way. Notice what it says in verse 8. I have to point this out. The, the brook dries up. Verse 8 immediately says, then the word of the Lord came to him. I want you to see this. Though there's a drought in the land, thankfully there's not a drought when it comes to God's word. This is very important. Actually, in about six kings, okay, there's going to be another prophet who shows up named Amos. So six kings after Ahab, you're going to have Amos come on the scene. The book of Amos. Remember that guy? Amos says this famously in Amos 8.11. Amos 8.11, Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord. That is terrifying. Amos gives a way worse judgment. Hey, it's not going to be famine of water or bread, but soon there will be a famine on the land that people will no longer be able to hear from God. Soon, either God's not speaking or they're not listening, but that famine's way worse. There will be a famine of the word of God. Here's what I love. There's a famine in the land, but verse 8 says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's much more terrifying to have a famine of the word of God than it is to have a famine of food. I don't know if we always believe that. When there's no food or water, that's probably, that's, I'm not trying to downplay that. It's extremely terrifying. What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? That's awful. But we have to see, like, there's that worse judgment. Just not hearing from God. Maybe God's not speaking. I'm very thankful, again, I prayed it or said in the beginning, but God, who at various times and various ways spoke to us through the prophets of old, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Thankfully, God is still speaking. And today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God is still speaking. God is speaking right now to you. God's word is still active and living. And I'd say, while God is still speaking, please listen. While God is still speaking, don't harden your hearts. Maybe the Lord is saying, hey, I don't want you to experience that famine, the famine of my word. Elijah is in the middle of a famine, but he still hears from God, thankfully. And here's what the word of God says. It's the most uncomfortable place in person. What do you think about how uncomfortable this is? Go to Zarephath. Okay, where, where is that? Um, that's basically the land of Sidon. Okay, that's the, that's the hometown of Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab. Jezebel, the one who's about to try to kill him. He, she puts him on the run, essentially. He's like, go to her home base. Go to where the Baal worship is at its strongest. Go into enemy territory. That's what he's saying. 
I want you to go into en enemy territory and you're going to find a widow, a Gentile widow. You're going to find this widow and she's going to provide for you. And that's uncomfortable. A widow provide for me? A woman who lost her husband? She has nothing? She's going to provide for me? Yeah. It's humbling. Go to your enemy. Go to a land that feels like it's far from me. Go to a person that you'd least expect to provide. That's what I do. I just think God puts us in uncomfortable places with uncomfortable people sometimes, and that's okay. <laughs> I just think there's times where it's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want them to do that. That's, that's weird. And God's like, no, no, this is, I put you in uncomfortable places and circumstances because that's why I do my best work. If you're ever uncomfortable, don't think that's not the Lord. It's probably the Lord. Moses, go speak. I can't speak. I have a stuttering problem. Go speak. The idea is like, I'm going to put you in uncomfortable positions because that's when I show up. I say, church, be ready for uncomfortable places and people. <laughs> As you follow Jesus, you'll be like, this is really uncomfortable. Embrace the uncomfort. Yes. Embrace those things. You're like, oh, this is weird. I don't know. This small group, no one's like, keep going. <laughs> I'm just saying God shows up in the most uncomfortable places with the most uncomfortable people. This is what God does. He says, go to this woman in Zarephath. Show up. Now, this is fascinating to me. I, I want to say this. The heart of God is also very clearly revealed in this passage. Notice that of all the widows, think about this. Think about the drought. Think about how it's affecting everyone. You're going to go to a Gentile woman, a Gentile woman who lives in a pagan land. Whether she knows me or not, she kind of is aware of God. We'll see that she is aware of God. She's aware of his God, the Lord your God, she says. But this is where he goes. Why her? Why to this widow? Why not to a Jewish widow? Why not to one of God's own people? Why to a woman who's part of probably, you know, under the kingdom of Baal? Why would he send her there? You know, this is a very interesting thing. Jesus actually quotes this story in Luke chapter 4. I always love when there's New Testament commentary on the Old Testament, don't you? I'm very thankful for that. This is a story that's like 1 Kings 17, Jesus quoted from that? Yeah, he did. So I'm going to put the verse up here. It's Luke chapter 4. Uh, let's read verse 25. Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Here's what it says. Jesus is speaking. He says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Just bear with me. He goes on to say, or goes on to say, when they heard these things, verse 28, when they heard these things, this example, uh, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. If you remember the story, he's actually in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, he's in his hometown. A prophet is not without honor except his own country, meaning a prophet has honor everywhere except his hometown. He's in Nazareth. He used this as an example to be like, look, at God saw the Gentile widow. God came to the Gentile widow. And basically, imagine for the Jewish people, it's like God has come to his own. His own did not receive him over and over again. God comes to this Gentile widow. She receives him. Her life is changed. Her life is saved. God comes to this widow. And the idea is they were so angry. It's like, are you saying that God doesn't come to us? They drove him to the mountain, ready to throw him off. If you remember, it says Jesus passed through the crowds. One of the craziest stories. Uh, when we go to Israel, we'll go to that, most likely that cliff where they drove him out to. It's a fun little spot. It's a beautiful spot. Kind of scary. Uh, but they drive him out of Nazareth. They bring him to the spot, ready to throw him over the cliff. Why? Because li listen to this example. He actually also speaks about a leper that Elisha heals. The whole point is this. Um, God goes to people that you least expect, and that is offensive to people. God goes to the outsider. God's like, I love the outsider, and I'm going to go to the outsider and remember how Jesus said, I did not, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. As, listen, I want to say this. You want to be an outsider. You want to be sick. Jesus has come to call the sick to health. As soon as you think, I'm not an outsider. I'm not sick. I don't know. Embrace your sickness and outsideness. That's what I want to say. Embrace it. It's like Jesus is like saying to them, he just read from the scroll from Isaiah, and he's trying to give this example. He goes, listen, you do not accept me. I come to my own. My own do not receive me. Look at Elijah. God sent him to the outsider. God sent him to the widow. So think about this. She's a woman in that day and age, how that's viewed. She's a widow. She has no, she's like an economic outsider, social outsider, gender outsider in a sense. Like she's an outsider in all of these ways. And Elijah's basically saying, and God went to her. God saw her in need. The grace of God always frustrates people for some reason. You know, the goodness and grace of God. God, why would you bless them? Or why? And it's weird. Let me say this. Um, there's something beautiful about that. Realizing, no, I'm the sick one. I'm the outsider. God, come to me. I don't want to think for a second I'm not sick or I'm not on the outside. Let me say this. If you feel like you're on the outside, know that that is like historically who God has always gone to. Like, it's, it's clear over and over again. There's just so many ideas of how this plays out in Scripture.
God's like, I care for the broken. I see the one that no one sees. Over and over, the, the plea in the New Testament from Paul in Galatians is, remember the poor. She's a widow. She's poor. My point of bringing this up is God has always cared about the outsider. God has always cared about the lost person. And we want to think maybe God comes to me, God chose me because of some, how great you are. No. <laughs> it's because of how broken you and I are. I'm not sitting up here because I'm so great. It's because I'm a sinner who's been found and saved by the blood of Jesus. It's because because of Jesus Christ I can be up here. Not because of my righteousness, not because I'm so good, because of the grace of God. My point of that and you as well, you are where you're at and you have what you have and the circumstance of your life do not think for a second it's because of you or your work, it's the grace of God. And I tell you, that's a, that's a frustrating thing to people. The grace of God just frustrates us. There's actually a verse in Galatians he talks about, do not frustrate the grace of God. Just embrace it. God loves you. God came to you. God rescued you because you're an outsider. You are the sick. This is the reminder. And the people are like, oh, I'm so mad about this. He's like, look at Elijah. He went to the outsider. God is an outsider's God. And here's what Elijah said to her. This is fascinating to me, verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. This is such a weird story, right? She's a widow. She lost her husband. She's in the middle of a drought. She, her son's young. We'll see that he's very young, maybe a little boy, maybe younger, very young son. And he's like, I know you only have a handful of flour and oil. That's all you have left. And I, she, she's literally thinking, I'm going to make my last meal and die. And he's like, take that little last thing that you have and give it to me. Then you can eat, <laughs> right? This seems incredibly selfish. Like, what? Like, what is, she, what is this request to a widow? Like, first of all, the, the audacity. I can't imagine today, right? If there's a widow up here, I'm like, hey, by the way, I know you have nothing, but first cook me a meal. Like, that's, what? This story is so insane when you read it. There's something about that. And, and I love it. Verse 15, it says, and she went and did. And she did it. You know, obviously, uh, here's how I, I would respond probably if I was a widow. I'd be like, okay, you see that I only have a handful. You promised me that God, after I take care of you, that I would have like limitless oil and flour from here on out. How about you just fill this jar first, then I'll make you a meal. Okay, I have a handful. Just fill this jar, then I'll do it. It's funny how we always want the Lord to do it first. And the Lord's like, no, you, you. So the, the example is in Joshua. Joshua, the, the, the uh, Jordan River parts. Not the Red Sea with Moses. This is different. It's first he steps in, then it parts. The idea is sometimes God's like, faith. Step out in faith. Make the meal in faith. Watch me provide. It might not be, it's funny because I really do put stipulations on God. God, you do this, then I'll do that. No, that's not how it works. Step out in faith. Make the meal first. And listen, she did. And the beautiful thing is God continued to provide for her until the first rain. Until now there's rain in the land. Things can grow again. There's life again. But her empty jar was filled over and over and over again. And it started with an act of faith. And listen, this woman displayed great faith. It seems like so often there's always the outsider who displays great faith. And God's like, I, I reward that. She went and did. Listen, church, God speaks. Just go out and do. She went and did. She didn't argue. She, she didn't kind of go, uh, you know, this is all I have. But he's like, let me tell you what to do. And she says, verse 15, she went and did, as Elijah said. Just God speaks, act on it. Again, Psalm 37, 5, what does that say? He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. She acts, she trusted, he acted, he provided. It's not always the order in which you want it. It's funny when I have to talk to my kids about this. My son always loves a bargain. He's like, well, first you do this, then I'll do that. I'm like, this is not how it works, buddy. I'm sorry. It's like, first, dad, if you do this, and then I'll clean my room. Nope, I'm sorry. You clean your room, then this happens. Like, my point is, like, always want to bargain with God, and we always want to, nope. God's like, I, I, want you, I want you to act in faith. Step out. Watch the waters depart. Step out. Watch the oil. Watch it be filled. This is how God moves. Listen, trust God even when circumstances don't make sense. Because when it makes sense, it's not really faith. Because when it adds up, anyone can do that. It's really faith when it doesn't make sense. It's really faith when it doesn't always add up. And what is God looking for? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God's looking for faith. And this is how she acts. So trust God when it doesn't make sense. Number two is this. Notice how it's going to graduate. We're going to read about the death of her son. And this is such like an outside, like what? God, he just provided for it and now her son dies? And you're going to see like their faith has to grow. It started off small and has to grow. Number two is this, trust God when faced with death. Let's read the story, verse 17. Here's how the story goes. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe 
that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord uh, is in your mouth and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Trust God God with faith with death. This is a fascinating story. Because imagine like this guy shows up, you provide for him. Your, jo- your jar has been filled continually. Like, oh my gosh, maybe this guy's legit. Maybe his God is legit. She actually claims like the Lord, your God lives, she said. So she's beginning to say, May- maybe, maybe this is all real. But then as soon as, you know, some time goes on, her son dies. And she's like, did you come? Because think about this, wherever prophets go, a lot of times death and destruction came, right? This guy just created a drought for the whole land. And now he comes to the house, it's like, wait, really? I accepted you. I feed you. God provides. This is so out of normal. Like God, you're just, sh- you were just answering my prayer. Like, we, you just answered prayer. I'm able to eat again. And now you take my son? This makes no sense. I want to point this out, by the way. It makes no sense to Elijah. I actually find that fascinating. Elijah, same thing. He's like, Lord, why? He essentially goes, is it because of her sin? My, my, like, what is this, Lord? What's going on? It's interesting because you, you could say it this way. Like, obviously, everyone has these sorts of questions, but here's a guy with his doctorate in ministry, in a sense. Here's a guy who knows the Lord. He's a prophet of God, and he's like, I, what's going on? God, what is, what is this? This is confusing even to him. I want you to see also, by the way, he just enters her pain. He enters her grief. Obviously, she's, she's grieving. She's blaming. You see, there's so many different levels kind of of grief, and she's kind of doing a couple of them. She's blaming. She's blaming him. She's blaming God, and he doesn't just, like, try to convince her. He doesn't try to talk her out of it. He just grieves with her. He's broken with her. He doesn't understand either. He does what he, do- he, does what he knows, though, and he goes to the Lord in prayer, and he prays with this child three times. The reason why I want to point this out or break this down a little bit is— um, the only true and living God could do this, and here's what I mean by this. Just stay with me. This is fascinating to me. If you read 1 Kings 17, there's a phrase used a couple of times, and I do think it's a precursor to what we see here, which is death. There's a phrase used about God lives. Look at this. We'll put the verses up here. Uh, it's verse 1 and verse 12. It says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Elijah said that. In verse 12, she says, as the Lord, your God lives. It's just interesting in the greater context, they, this is not always said about God. Hey, as the Lord your God lives, as the Lord God lives, he says. There's this emphasis on living in this chapter, but then there's death. This is interesting to me. The focus is that there's a living God, but now right before us, there's death. There's a living God, but there's death around. There's a drought. There's a death of a son. This God's living, but it seems as if everything around is dead. You know, one of the hardest things sometimes when you talk to someone who truly is going through grief or loss or pain and they, they wonder, is it because of my sin? Did I do something? And not realizing, like, yes, this is a part of life. The process, it's so sad. It's so tragic. Death was never God's original intent or will for us, but death is a part of life. Death is not necessarily because God's presence is there. It's, it's actually the opposite. Usually you see regeneration or life when God's presence is there. But the point of why I'm bringing this up, there's such an emphasis as the Lord God lives, your God lives, but now here's death. Here's the thing. It's only the true and living God who could do things that we don't understand. Meaning, the people and this woman, she lives, she worships the people, worship this area, they worship Baal, the dead God, false God, idol God, not a real God. Usually that God did what you wanted. That God couldn't challenge you. Why? He's not alive. He's not real. He can't do the thing you don't want. There's a side of like those gods that they worship, their God was really made after their own image. Our God is not made after our image, we're made after his image. It's funny when I hear the world talk about it sometimes. They act like we made God in our image. I'm like, no. That's why God, God does things I don't understand. God does things where I go, I don't, agree. I don't like that. What is that? But that's how you know he's a one true God. If your God always agreed with you, is that really God? If your God always did things that you understood, maybe that's not God and that's just a created image, false God. We have to understand this idea of like the Lord your God lives, the Lord your God lives. Listen, the living God will do things that you and I don't understand. 
the living God will, will do things. We go, I don't get that. I don't get death. I don't, I don't get it. I can understand that's a byproduct of sin, but I don't, I don't get it. There are certain things in our life and our journey as Christians where we go, the living God will do things we don't always understand, and that's how you know he's the living and true God. Because again, if he did things that you always understood, would it be real? If he agreed with you 100% of the time, would he be the one true God? God will have, the living God will have to do things that even you disagree with. I want to put it to you this way. Tim Keller said it so famously. He says this. Hear me out. It's a long quote. He says, you know you have a living God when he says things you don't understand and you don't like, but you still obey him. And when he sends things you don't understand and you don't like, but you still serve him. Only then do you know that you have a real God, not a God you made up. If you have a God that fits into your mind, that never says anything or does anything that doesn't dumbfound and confound you or upset you, if you have a God that fits into your mind, then you have a God spun out of your mind. If you're not willing to have a God who can contradict you, if you're not willing to have a, uh, an untamed God, if you're not willing to have a God who is uncontrollable, then you'll never have a real God. You'll never have a living God. When you have concocted a God in your mind, that God is as dead as if you've carved it. When you carve a God, sit up very carefully because if that God falls over, you're going to have to put it back in place. It's not going to get back there itself. It's not living. This is a God who is sovereign. This is a God who is not accountable to us. This is a God who is free to judge, and both Elijah and this woman know it. The idea is, again, this is a living God. This is the one true God. God can do things and will do things that oftentimes that you do not understand. Elijah doesn't get it. Is this because of my sin, she asks? Elijah's like, God, what is going on? He stretches, he says, none of it makes sense. Even the resurrection part doesn't make sense. It's one of those things where, like, this death of the son, what is that about God? Come on, you just provided for, you just showed up, and now you take your son? Then Elijah prays three times. He stretches out. He's basically uh, praying on her behalf. God, please bring the son back to life. He presents the son to his, the, and even that doesn't make sense. Listen, I love this because as much as the frustrating questions there are about sin and hell and death, that doesn't make sense. I'll say this. Heaven doesn't make sense. Resurrection doesn't make sense. If you only struggle with why would a loving God send someone to hell, you should struggle with the other side, which is why would a just God send someone to heaven? Both don't make sense. Both are frustrating. Both you go, I don't, why would God do this? I don't know. Why does God allow someone like me in heaven? See, God does things that we don't always understand or get. That's what makes him God. If your God always agreed with you, that, that's a problem. I, I want you to see this because it's like there's such a challenge to her. <sighs> okay. Now here's the thing too that's beautiful. She asks, is it because of my sin, my son dies? The answer is no. Death is a byproduct of life. Death happens because of sin, yes. And Adam all die. It's not because of her sin or son dies. But this obviously is reminded us of a greater story where God's going, no, it's but because of your sin, my son dies. Not because of your sin, your son dies. But because of your sin, my son will die. See, God's son dies so that we can be forgiven. God's son faced death, died, and also resurrected so that my sins could be forgiven. It wasn't because of her sin that her son died, but it was because of her sin that Jesus died. It was because of my sin that Jesus died. There is a son who will die and rise again. There is a, a, the, the beautiful story of Jesus who also, I love this in Luke chapter 7, meets a widow or, and who also has her son who's dead. There's a funeral procession moving forward in Luke 7. Jesus touches the casket. The son lives, presents the son to the mom, just like Elijah presents the son. And here's what I want you to see. It was as soon as the resurrection happened and she sees her son, she ends with this comment, which I find fascinating. It's the last comment. She said to him, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here's the idea. Now that I've seen resurrection, I know this is true. Why do we know Jesus is who he says he is? Because of resurrection. Can I tell you the knockout punch argument of Christianity is the resurrection. We know Jesus died. The question is, did he rise? If he rose, that changes everything. We're getting a little Easter message before Easter, if that's okay. <laughs> My, my point is, it's, it's so profound. Like, yes, resurrection for her, now I know. Can I tell you this? You can know that Jesus is who he said he is, not because he said it, not because he died, but because he rose. His resurrection, that gives life and meaning and weight to his words. Because who can also say these things and rise from it? Like Jesus is the only one to rise again from the dead to never die again. He's truly the first resurrected person. This kid rose again to die later in his life. Jesus rose again to never die again. 
Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The, the idea for us is, man, if you've really, like this woman, if you've actually looked at the resurrection, if you've actually spent time on it, you too will go, now I know that what he says is truth. Now I know the words in your mouth are truth because I saw resurrection. I want you to know this. Jesus rose again from the grave. And if you believe this, you too will rise again from the grave. And there's something so beautiful about resurrection that changes everything. Now I know the words are true. How do you know what Jesus said is true? Because of the resurrection. How do you know the resurrection is true? Come join us on Easter. We'll talk more about it. <laughs> my, my thing is we know the resurrection is true. It changed everything. It changed absolutely everything. Have you experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in your life? It will change everything. Is it because of my sin my son died? No. But it's because of your sin God's son died. But he also rose. And if you believe on him, you will be saved. Can we just end this time by just thanking God, looking to God, trust God even when the circumstances don't make sense. Trust God when faced with life and death. He's the only one who has the power over life and death. There is power in the name of Jesus. Let's just worship. Can we do that? Father, we just want to say thank you. We just want to say, God, there is no one like you. We thank you that you are the living God. All these other gods do what we want <laughs> because they're not truly God. But Lord, you are the one who challenges us. You're the one who does the uncomfortable thing because you are God and we're not. And we look to you, Lord, and just say, we trust you. We trust you because you are the one who has resurrection power that brings life to death. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that because of my sin, you died, but you also rose. Jesus, we look to you. You are the greater than Elijah. You are the, the last prophet. You are the one who rose again. And we just say thank you, Jesus. We just want to praise you now. We just want to worship you now. We just want to acknowledge, Jesus, that everything in our life is from you. In your precious name. Listen, church, if you would stand really quick before we just worship, if you would stand, and I just want to invite you to this. You can know this Jesus. And I would say, I will be up here. Leaders will be up here. If you want to know this Jesus and the power that is in the resurrection, come, talk with us, pray with us. We would love for you to know this Jesus. He's the son who died for my sins. He's the son who rose again. He's the one who conquered sin, hell, and death. We want you to know this Jesus. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just uh, worship the Lord, join him, and if you need prayer, we'll be up here. But let's sing, let's worship.